0: Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, Extra Innings. We are very excited today to have Jesse Murmel and also Linda Vieira. And my co-hosts today are... Martha from Boston Red Cloak, Karen from Boston Red Cloaks. And we're thrilled to
1: have you here today. Welcome, Jesse. She is running for the U.S.
2: Congressional District 4 in Massachusetts, a very highly contested seat. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to be with you today to talk about you know, one of the subjects that really fires me up. We'll get right into it. You've had a background with Planned Parenthood and with Governor Deval Patrick. So why are you running, Jesse? The stump speech reason of why I'm running, uh, and it's real, it's, you know, I'm running to take on Donald Trump and his minions. I'm running to fight for Medicare for all and for a reproductive health system that works for everyone and to lead an equitable recovery to COVID-19. But, you know, I'm running because the stuff that I've been working on for the past 20 plus years is what I wish were coming out of Washington, right? I wish that we were seeing an aggressive fight for reproductive health care. I wish that we were seeing a pro-choice majority in the House of Representatives stand up and fight for abortion access. And I wish that we were seeing paid family and medical leave. And I wish that we were seeing equal pay and equitable investments in transportation and so much more. But the reason I got in this race, you know, when I heard the seat was opening up, I had a job I loved and wasn't looking to make a move and felt like I was doing a pretty good job and making important contributions, including supporting things like the Access Bill and the Roe Act. But when I looked at Washington and looked back on my career and thought honestly about my grandmother, who is long gone, sadly, but was incredibly civic minded and was... um, just completely certain of her core belief that if there were problems out there, you had to play a role in fixing them. I couldn't sit on the sidelines. I just couldn't. I had to swing at the pitch. Uh, So I quit my job and blew up my life. uh, And I've been running since early October. And we've been putting the fight for reproductive health care, for abortion access, and reproductive justice at the center of this campaign. Tell us about the uh, work that you'd like to see happen with the Hyde Amendment. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's repeal Hyde. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that, that's the work that I'd like to see happen with the Hyde Amendment. Um, you know, my dear friend and endorser in this race, Ayanna Presley, has been a fearless champion on all things reproductive health, but particularly uh, around the, the need to repeal the Hyde Amendment and making clear the, the negative impact that it's happening, particularly on BIPOC people needing access to abortion care. Uh, We know that it's just one part of the many areas of policy in this country feeding into the 400 plus years of systemic racism that exists in America. Um, Repealing the Hyde Amendment is a racial justice issue, in addition to a healthcare issue, in addition to an economic issue. Uh, And I'm very, very committed to going to Washington and being Ayanna's partner in that fight. But let's be clear, there's a lot more we have to do in Washington, right? We've got to codify Roe in federal law. We dodged a bullet with the Supreme Court. Now, what was it, a month ago, six weeks ago? COVID time is so fluid. I have no, That could have been <laughs> yesterday. I have no idea. Um, but we know that more attacks are coming, right? We know that future attacks on Roe and abortion access are coming, and so we need to codify Roe in federal law. We've got to repeal the global gag rule. We've got to protect Title X and make sure it's actually used for family planning not money going to crisis pregnancy centers. I mean, there's so much we have to do at the federal level around reproductive health. Um, You know, you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, this is work I've been up to my eyeballs in for a long, long time. And I wanna take that muscle that I've built here in Massachusetts, go to Washington and fight for reproductive rights.
1: Your previous work with Planned Parenthood prepared you more for what you're going to take to Washington. Can you you tell us more about your
2: work there, please? So I ran external affairs at Planned Parenthood here in Massachusetts now about a decade ago, and I'll tell you, I think it prepared me in a few ways. One, from the pure policy perspective, right? Uh, I was working there during the heart of the ACA debate, pounding the pavement in Congress, fighting to make sure that contraceptive coverage was included as preventive care in the ACA, the exact thing that the Supreme Court stripped out of the ACA a month or so ago. And you know what was it that Justice Ginsburg said? Uh, that decision leaves women to fend for themselves. Uh, and uh, having, having spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get it passed in the first place, uh, I take that pretty personally. And uh, it's very high on my agenda to, uh, to figure out how we fix when I'm in Washington but there's also a really personal component of being one of the very few people who'd be in congress to have gone to work every day in a reproductive health care facility in a place where abortion care is provided to understand what it means to have a security guard and a metal detector there because people's safety can be in jeopardy just because they're trying to protect abortion access or seek the care that they need and I think having that understanding at a really fundamental level, knowing what it's like to walk through those doors every day to see what our patients have to go through just to access care, to understand how important that access is to them, that doesn't leave you. It never leaves you. And to be one of the few members of Congress who have that experience, in addition you know, to being in the trenches on the policy side, I just think that matters so much. And I know it's informed everything I've done even since leaving Planned Parenthood. And it's certainly going to be a central part uh, of the work that I do in Congress. And I'm really proud that Planned Parenthood has endorsed me in this race. NARAL has endorsed me in this race. Vote Pro Choice, the National Women's Political Caucus, the Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus. I'm so grateful that my friends in the reproductive health care and abortion care communities are really rallying behind me as we, you know, enter the home stretch here.
1: I have a, one more question or a recommendation. I don't know how to phrase it, but is there any way also that you can educate being from Planned Parenthood and dedicated your life to that, that you can educate your the male representatives and the male contingent in our government as to how the women reproductive, system works and how the work how the body works so they can understand and they can make the laws according to that because we have talked to so many different representatives and they don't seem to have taken a biology class ever in their life yeah or they forgot because it was
2: such a long time ago it is amazing that so many of these people and a lot of them are men Think that they can make decisions about what we do about our bodies, and don't even understand how our bodies work in the first place. I'll tell you exactly.
1: Exactly.
2: I'll tell you a funny story. I was uh, at my PCP. This is probably two years ago now, and you know, having my annual physical. And I've been going to this doctor for a long time now. We have, and she's wonderful. We have a great relationship, and she's probably in her sixties. And was telling me about. Uh, being a doctor in 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 the 70s and having to go to one of her male supervisors and explain that a piece of equipment that she was using to give, you know, an annual physical to a woman needed to come in various sizes and that only having one size was causing women discomfort unnecessarily. And she went to her colleague who was a doctor to make this case and this fellow doctor said to her, why do you need different sizes? It does the same thing. What are you talking about? And she had to make the case that, well, women are human beings and human beings come in different sizes. And so therefore it might be beneficial to our patients to offer equipment that is better suited to their bodies. And, you know, decades later, she's telling me this story still absolutely baffled, that she had to make the case. And so, you know, yes, I want to take the knowledge that I have from having worked at Planned Parenthood, having partnered with some remarkable medical professionals on the nursing side, on the PA side, on the doctor side, um, delivering truly top-notch, compassionate, culturally competent care, uh, and bring that to Washington to, to explain to people who might not understand how our bodies work as people who need Access to abortion care uh, and how Planned Parenthood works. It's so important, and we know the misconceptions are just, um, they're plentiful. Let's just say that. Yes, they are, and that's a very funny story. But I'd like
1: to digress just a little bit because you're hitting on a number of things that we are also very curious about Uh, economic, uh, social, and political inequalities. It's kind of a general net for the same thought,
2: but I'm curious as to what individual topics that means to you. So I think about the ways in which policy has been used, I would say intentionally, over the past 400 plus years in this country to institutionalize and exacerbate particularly racial inequities in this country, right? And I'm talking about everything from redlining in housing policy, to the ways in which we haven't closed the wage gap, which we know disproportionately impacts black and brown women in the workplace, to reproductive health care and the Hyde Amendment, to climate justice and environmental justice and the ways in which our policies uh, you know, make it easier for pollution and uh, you know, the negative impacts of climate change to impact black and brown communities. It is so systemic. That there's literally no area of policy in this country that we can talk about without discussing racial justice and inequity. I know that it's going to be my job as a member of Congress to look at every single piece of legislation that passes over my desk through that racial equity lens. Obviously there's some pieces of legislation that are uh, really front and center in this right now. I think about Ayanna Presley's People's Justice Guarantee and the conversation around ending qualified immunity um those things are understandably at the top of the list right now but the list is infinite uh and so for me it's about how is policy really um exacerbating these inequities and how do we make frankly different choices than what generations of leaders have made before us to create different outcomes
0: can you talk about the racial justice lens, and then you look at where the disparity hits the most, you're right, it's on Black and brown women, because we live in a society that has these intersections of racism and also a patriarchy. So you're right. Um, When we look at those impacts here in Massachusetts, we've been very focused on the Roe Act. And so we want to, we would love to know your thoughts on why it's stuck, because we're at a time where people are becoming more aware. It's, you know, it's the hundredth anniversary of women's suffrage. We're this week watching the Democratic National Convention. We've got our first woman who's being a vice president who is a woman of color, um, who's an incredibly qualified candidate. We couldn't break the glass ceiling to have a woman be the president nominee this time. But yet in Massachusetts, which people think is so blue and progressive, we can't pass what's a relatively simple act trying to bring our laws and the definitions up to 2020
2: medical scientific standards. So have you been following it? Not only have I been following it, I worked for a previous iteration of this bill when I was at Planned Parenthood. This bill isn't just stuck right now. It, you know, It has been filed in some way, shape, or form for well over a decade. When I got to Planned Parenthood, I think it was in 2008 when I first started working there, it was already several years old. So it's had different names and you know some pieces of it have been changed, but we've been working on this as a reproductive rights community for a long time. Uh, And the fact that it's in the place where it is in the state house is progress. Sure not progress enough, Um, but yeah. Tell us more, so what did it look like in 2008? It was called the Archaic Law Repeal Bill back then and a lot of components were similar. Um, But we were really talking about it as a housekeeping bill. Hey, there are these old, dusty things that are on the books, and on the off chance that Roe would ever come under attack. We really just want to clean this up. You know, there wasn't the same sense of urgency. Because remember, we were in the Obama administration, and the Supreme Court looked really different. Um, So it was the type of thing that we were talking about as a, again, a housekeeping thing. Like, we, we should probably do this out of an abundance of caution we're existing in a really different world right now. I mean, the Supreme Court is totally different. The cultural debate is totally different. Even though we know the numbers are on our side, the heat uh, in the anti-abortion community is very, very different. And of course we know who's in the White House, no need to speak his name. Uh, So I think that's why you're seeing the conversation around what's now known as the Roe Act be very, very different. But fundamentally it, it, it has changed quite minimally Um, I was really proud to testify in favor of the Roe Act, gosh, two years ago now, when was that big hearing? Yeah, June 2019, June 17th. There you go, but but who's counting, right? So a little over a year ago. uh, I was the president of the Alliance for Business Leadership at the time, the socially responsible business organization in Massachusetts. And we had supported the access bill, um, which of course made sure that uh, birth control and contraceptive coverage is included in most insurance plans here in Massachusetts. Uh, Making the economic case, right? That a person's ability to control her reproductive future is also their ability to control their economic future. And to have a board of business leaders, a lot of the men, I have to say, who didn't hesitate to support the access bill I mean, truly, it was one of the shortest debates we ever had because they thought it was a total no-brainer. Of course, of course, anyone who needs abortion access should have access to that care. Why are we even having this discussion? Um, And so I testified on behalf of the Alliance for Business Leadership as a former Planned Parenthood employee supporting the Roe Act uh, as a moral imperative, as a healthcare imperative, but also as something that's directly tied to the economic future of Massachusetts when women are such a significant part of our workforce and our economic engine. And I don't understand from a logical perspective why it is so stuck. This stuff is no brainer legislation in a body where we have a pro-choice majority in the state house. Um, I think there are these old misconceptions that these are hard votes, but the numbers are there in a pro-choice majority in the building and in terms of public sentiment about protecting abortion access. So. It is a mystery to me, but I'm not going to stop pounding the pavement. And uh, Ayanna Presley and I just made a video together a few weeks ago uh, when the deadline was extended uh, for the session, giving us your extra innings. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, To encourage people to keep the activism up, right? Keep calling, keep pressing, keep getting your friends to do the same. And uh, I'm not giving up. I know you guys aren't giving up. Uh, It's such an important bill now more than ever.
0: It does seem like there even among some of the executive committee leadership on the Roe Coalition, it seems like there is a concern that perhaps September is going to be focused on the budget, and then they have bills that have made it so far that they're ready for reconciliation, and that possibly you know, with the other many bills still floating out there, it'll drift away. I know we believe that grassroots activism and educating other people who just still aren't quite aware that it's happening. understand that they have the chance now by becoming informed to reach out and be part of getting their legislators to prioritize it. Interviews with other legislators um, sound like there are the votes to pass it. It's a question of bringing it forward and whether there have to be compromises. And one of the compromises people talk about is whether or not judicial bypass is something that all legislators are, quote, you know, ready for. And what are your thoughts about compromise and what it takes because you've been in a position before where you've had to shepherd something through what's it like from the perspective of someone who is trying to get something the whole way through and then reaches a point where you may have to give up on something
2: it's deeply frustrating and it's also the reality of being a legislator right you know not, i wasn't there in a legislative capacity but i was one of the eight people the legislature asked to come together to negotiate paid family medical leave here in massachusetts which we know is you know a a dear cousin of reproductive rights, right? And, you know, we spent seven months in that process. And I was sitting on the same side of the table as our friends from labor and the social justice movement. And we walked in with some core beliefs, right? There were some core things we were trying to accomplish. And we knew that there were um, issues, I don't wanna say issues around the edges, but details around the edges of those core beliefs that were going to have to be on the table. And we made a decision as a team in those early days about what we were going to hold strong on and what, you know, maybe is it the number of weeks, is it the employer employee payment split that we might be willing to have conversations on and ultimately, you know, were and came out of that seven month long process with the strongest paid family medical leave law in the country, but never compromised on our core goals. And to me, that's a really logical approach to things like this. And. You know, as I'm sure you've had lengthy discussions about, you know, judicial bypass is an excessively burdensome weight to place on a young person. The idea that a young person who isn't in the situation where they feel that they can safely talk to a parent or a guardian uh, about their need for abortion care, and considering what might be going on in a home where those circumstances are, are their reality would somehow be able to navigate the transportation, the legal system, the leaving school, all of it, simply being in a courtroom, to seek that permission from a judge uh, is certainly better than no path to doing that, but it is unwieldy at best and sets up huge barriers to access to healthcare. Again, particularly for low-income people and black and brown people and uh, I know that it's a conversation that a lot of people really have to think through. But as I, I literally had this conversation with someone the other day who was you know, a parent and asking me about it. And when we, we had the hard conversation about not every young person's reality is what we wish they were experiencing. And, and they saw that and ultimately agreed that ending the judicial bypass was the right thing to do. Yeah,
1: and additionally, a judge does not have to report any suspicions about violence
2: that may have been done to that person, or any sort of abuse. Right? Mm-hmm. If, if a young person shows up, not just at Planned Parenthood or an abortion care provider, but uh, you know, with a medical professional, and there's a reason to support to to be concerned about abuse, uh, they're mandatory reporters. Mm-hmm. Right? They have to report that. So. For the very justified concerns that what if this young person has been abused? What if something has happened to them? How are we being assured they're being taken care of? Which is a, a, a very fair question to ask. By showing up at a doctor's office, mm-hmm. that's how we know that someone is going to be taking care of them. Right. Absolutely. What advice do you have for us? We are incredibly dedicated to getting this Roe Act passed. Literally, don't give up. So the equal pay legislation that passed in Massachusetts in 2016 I believe took 20 years. Now, I believe the technical definition for that is Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Of course, you're the grown te- up, yes. The technical definition for that is bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. It should not have taken 20 years. But the remarkable women who started filing that legislation, Alice Wolf, Ellen Story, some other real heroes of this movement, never gave up. And it shouldn't have taken 20 years. Oh, my goodness. And this shouldn't take 20 years. But they never gave up. And other people joined the movement. And the coalition grew and included voices you never would have expected by the end. And we got it over the line. This should not take that long. This should not take that much work. As I said, this is no brainer legislation. But, you know, ride the roller coaster. Don't let the lows get you down. Keep expanding the coalition. Keep going and know that this is the right thing. Know that you're fighting for justice and know that ultimately, you know, we will win the day.
0: I want to say, um, you, you know, you, you're, um, you're very inspirational because there are a lot of highs and lows. Because it has been extended till November. We have time to make that case. We think we've got the votes. We just need our legislators to be brave and bring it to the floor for a vote. And if it fails in a vote on the floor, then we at least know where people stand. And then we know what the
2: work is to do. Last night,
0: we saw an amazing historic nomination for vice president and don't want to let that pass without asking how
2: you felt watching. I, well, (laughs) I was in New Hampshire in 2008 when uh Hillary Clinton won on primary night and there were crazy overflow rooms and I was in like the seventh overflow room I couldn't possibly been farther from the action but I remember looking over and seeing a group of women who were probably in their 80s yeah. and they were just so overcome I-, I mean the emotion of it and obviously we couldn't be in rooms with our girlfriends last night because of everything that's going on but i felt the same way you know the 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 ar- the hair on your arms stands up and it gets a little dusty in the room eyes get a little <laughs> a little watery uh, it was such a proud moment and you know senator harris did a remarkable job and i think about my niece and nephews and my honorary niece and nephews and my friends who are watching this and it just it means so much the symbolism matters and so i'm you know i'm proud to support her i'm going to be proud to call her my vice president and watch what she does for everyone in this country but particularly you know black and brown girls who are going to be watching her and understanding what is possible for them
0: Having it happen the same week that we're celebrating literally the ratification of the 19th Amendment felt incredibly well-timed.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you give us some information about uh, your website or how can we find more about you?
2: Sure. Uh, My website is just jessimermel.com. That's Jesse with an E, Mermel with two L's. Uh, and election day is September 1st, but it's actually every day. So for folks in the 4th <laughs> Congressional District, I'd love to earn your vote honor before September 1st. Anyone who'd like to volunteer or get involved, it's jessimermel.com. Uh, and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to, to chat with all of you today. It's been a great time.
1: Thank you for being here with us. And don't forget, for everybody that is listening to us, August the 22nd is the last day for you to register to vote. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. And thank
2: you for being such champions. I'm inspired and call me when you need help. Count me in. Yay, we will.
1: Thank you very much. A pleasure to meet you. you.